So, uh, if you would like to turn to your Bibles, uh, although it is on the screen, um, if you're having a bit of difficulty finding out where Revelation is, um, it is the last book in the Bible, but you will find this morning's reading on page 1234. I didn't make it up. It is actually on 1234. Um, so, there's no excuse for you not to be able to find it if you want to have it open in front of you, because I don't think this will stay on the screen for the next two hours. <laughs> or beyond. So, let's read it together. To the angel of the church, that's the leader of the church, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write this. This is the vision that John had. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and, com and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come against you, I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. So, if you've not been around for the last couple of Sundays, uh, let me just do a very quick recap. In Revelation chapter 1, you have John's vision of the risen, reigning Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. Robed in holiness, surrounded by overwhelming heavenly splendour. One who operates through the church. And the church, singular on earth, is functioning for him through the churches, plural. The church, the whole body of Christ on earth, irrespective of where they worship, what denomination they might call themselves, work and function for the Lord of glory enthroned in heaven. That's what chapter 1 is all about. And in chapters 2 and 3, we get seven letters to seven churches which provide 
not only a commendation and a word of encouragement and a pat on the back where they need a pat on the back, but we get also uh, a word of warning, a word of correction, and a word of rebuke. Why is that? Because the Lord in heaven wants to create a church on earth that reflects the glory that he has in heavenly places and functions for him and serves him as if he were here on earth. Tall order? Tall order. Because we're human and we're fallible. And therefore, these churches had their problems, like every church has its problem. Don't find a perfect church. You're wasting your time. There isn't one. Not on earth. So we get the well-dones. But we also get the anguishes. Two weeks ago, we learnt about Ephesus. The problem with Ephesus was that they were a people who had lost their first love. Last week we heard about the church in Smyrna. Smyrna had its afflictions. It had its trials and its difficulties. It had its poverty. It endured. Yet, said God, you are rich. Recognize that. And so now we come to the message to the church in Pergamum. Folks, I want to tell you this. If you thought life in the 21st century in Britain was pretty tough, you don't know the half. Pergamum was the centre of four cults. The Balaamites, the Nicolaitans were two of them. And God described that place as the place where Satan has his throne. Was it like Sodom and Gomorrah? I don't know. But my guess is it was something akin to Sodom and Gomorrah. Life for Christian people, for followers of Jesus, was tough But the commendation was that they remained faithful. Even though one of their number, a man called Antipas, was martyred for his faith, they remained faithful. They continued to follow and to serve the Lord Jesus. He and they did not renounce their faith. Are you ever tempted to give up? Do things in your Christian life dog you so much that that faith wears thin? You wonder whether, whether it really is worth carrying on? Brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, I want to encourage you to be people of determination to remain faithful. Faithful to the Word of God. Faithful to who Jesus is. Faithful to His Word and what He is doing. 
faithful to the Holy Spirit moving amongst us. Be a people of faith and ask God to give you more of it. Because if you ask, he will give. One of the problems, however, with the church at Pergamum was, I've got three easy one-word headings for you this morning. Compromise. Compromise. Antipas didn't compromise, but there were some in the church there who did. Interesting that the Nicolaitans were also in Ephesus. They were a strong, godless cult. And the believers from the church in Pergamum, as with the ones in Ephesus, if they sided at all with the Nicolaitans, they were compromising their faith. They were indulging in practices of society uh, that were inappropriate. It was a godless sect that promoted idol worship, promiscuity, degrading behaviour. But it was attractive. That's the problem. It's what is, in the human sense, naturally attractive, where our, our attention, our feet, our mind are drawn. The, um, in the American Civil War, <clears throat> there was a story told of a soldier who wasn't sure whether he should fight for the North or for the South. So he wore a jacket from the North and he wore trousers from the South. Good idea. No. What happened? He got shot at from both sides. That's what compromise does. You're on middle ground, which is no man's ground. Compromise is often a dangerous place to be, particularly where our faith is involved. You got that? If you don't, get it. Compromise is a dangerous place to be where our faith is involved. And sadly, there are many in the church today who live compromised lives. The great Scottish preacher, G. Campbell Morgan, said this. You need to listen carefully, not because he was Scottish. Um, I wish they'd speak English but simply because you you don't get it at first hearing, possibly. He said it is a remarkable thing that the church persecuted has been the church of Christ pure. On the other hand, the church patronised has been the church impure. Got that? The church persecuted has been the church of Christ pure. But the church patronised 
has been the church impure. And as compromise finds its way into the church, it doesn't actually strengthen the church. It doesn't actually make the church more attractive. It actually lowers the bar of what Jesus wants of us. And we lose our effectiveness. And that's why I'm sad about what's going on in the church at the moment. Not this church only, but the denomination that we're part of. But we lose our, effective person, our effectiveness personally too when we begin to compromise what God, what Jesus stands for, all that he is. And I want to say to you in love this morning, brothers and sisters, will you beware, beware of the world's ways and the world's standards that are like a magnet that wants to draw us into them. The things that become more and more acceptable. Who put a new carpet down in their house five years ago? It's one, no wonder carpet world's going out of business. <laughs> Has nobody renewed their carpet five years ago? Well done. Thank you for volunteering to be an illustration of my illustration. Question. Do you treat your carpet now the same way as you treated it the day after it was laid? Excuse me, you haven't done a new carpet. <laughs> None of you volunteered to say yes. Who's renewed their car in the last five years? And the car industry is supposed to be flat. It's amazing, isn't it? Do you treat your car now the same way as you treated it the day you drove it off the forecourt? Do you really? Well, you can go home. <laughs> the answer is, generally speaking, apart from Vanessa, we don't. It's too good to be true in Brazil, I tell you. Generally speaking, we don't. Why? Because it's no longer new. So we don't treat it with the respect, I almost said reverence, that implies worship, that would be wrong. But the respect that we give something that we have just paid a lot of money for. And the danger is that in, world, in a worldly sense, and this is the point I'm trying to make through the illustration, what we become accustomed to living with, we lose respect for in terms of where the boundaries and the danger zones lie. Yes? As Gary would say, Amen? Amen. Amen. Right. Jesus, take this away with you, Jesus was full of compassion for people and their needs, their issues. He overflowed with it. But he never compromised the Word of God and who he was. Draw your own conclusions. And another thing that Jesus 
Excuse me. Another thing that, that Jesus had against the church in Pergamum. Doing a Gareth. Tolerance versus intolerance. What do we tolerate and what do we show no tolerance for at all? There is room for differences of opinion in, uh, in some areas. But there is absolutely no room, no room for heresy, for impurity, for ungodly behaviour, for sinful habits in the Church of Jesus Christ. Friends, do not tolerate sin by being open-minded. Do not tolerate sin by being open-minded. Open-minded to differences that are amongst us, but not open-minded to anything that contradicts the truth. The Word of God is the Word of God, and Jesus upheld it, and we are here to reflect Him, His work, His glory, in honour. And I have to say, we don't do it very well. Forgive me, but we don't. Standing firm against the strong pressures of society is never easy, but the alternative is deadly. So where do you, where do I cross the boundaries? In this instance in Revelation to the church at Pergamum, Christ rebuked the church for tolerating unholy behaviour and those who lead people astray. It's in verse 15. So he says in verse 16, repent, repent. Be aware of what you are doing to me. You're representing me. And unless you change, I'll come against you in judgment. That's what Jesus said to the church. Be aware of what you're doing to me. And Christ's warning doesn't change. It includes us as well. He is pure and he is holy and we are commanded to be the same. In 1 Peter 1.15 Be holy as he is holy. If you want to look at the rules for holy living, read Colossians chapter 3. It is holiness that should mark us out as God's people. How can we, as the people of God, bearing in mind how he is described in Revelation chapter 1, how can we tolerate things that compromise his word and compromise his standards? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you've heard of him, haven't you? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, tolerance 
trumps truth. Tolerance trumps truth. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he said, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. We are fighting today for costly grace. And like Antipas, that cost him his life. We desperately need to resist the pressure to conform to whatever standard the the world has sunk to. Resist the pressure to conform. God requires us to have a holy hatred of sin, a burning love for him. In my Bible notes a couple of weeks ago, uh, the parting shot for the day was this. If there is a breakdown in your relationship with God, it's only a matter of time until compromisers make their way into your life and standards are lowered. So it all hinges about our relationship with God, where, where we are at with him. Uh, this last week, I don't know whether you picked it up from the news, uh, I'm nearly done. Uh, there was a lady by the name of Sarah Thomas who did something amazing. Yes? No? Ringing bells? She swam the, the channel. Not once, not twice, but four times, non-stop. Was anybody invited to join her? Too busy. Okay. An amazing feat uh, for anybody. She would not have been able to achieve that if she had not immersed herself in the water. Stating the obvious, isn't it? But taking the analogy of water and echoing a talk by one who is a far better preacher than I will ever be. There are three types of Christian. There is the paddling Christian. You know where this is going, don't you? There is the paddling Christian. The Christian who is content with a shallow experience of God. It's safe. but it's not terribly fulfilling other than cooling your feet down. Religious nominalism, Christian nominalism, involves dividing loyalties. Or you could be a wading Christian, committed but holding back. I can stand the water up to my waist, but I don't go any further. In spiritual terms, that might be a comfortable place to be. The difference is you are keeping control. 
And then there's the swimming Christian. Who is totally committed, trusting him or herself to the water completely. Feet are off the ground. And in spiritual terms, that's where you get to the same place as the hymn writer long ago said, I've come to a place where it's none of self and all of thee. Pergamum was a church where there were faithful people. But there were some amongst the number who were paddling in Christian terms. And there were some who were just wading. And there were some who were swimming. I guess the bottom line is do we really, really want to be holy people of God? That's H-O-L-Y, not the other variety. Do we really want to be holy people of God? So if we're to seek the commendation of Jesus for all that we are about, together as part of his family in this place, we've got to rule out compromise. We've got to rule out tolerance of things that are not godly and not of him. And we've got to repent of all that is past and all that is going on now. And we've got to change direction. And under the power and the direction of his spirit, go his way. And I'm persuaded that if we were a God-pleasing people in every respect, we would be amazed, amazed at what God would do with us. Let's pray together. Spend some moment in quiet. Too often we see holiness as an option and not a necessity. Ask God to create in you a desire to become as Christ-like as is possible in this life and to remain true to who he is and what he stood for.
going to invite you to remain seated as we sing a song of response.